If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Stories of Greece, chapters 61 to 65, by Mary McGregor. In the last chapters, the Palatians bravely evaded destruction after the attack of the Thebans. In tonight's story, the Spartans make their attack on Attica. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 61 Attica is invaded by the Spartans In the month of May, 431 BC, Attica itself was invaded by a large Spartan army under King Archimedes. Before he crossed the border into Attica, the king bade his army halt while he sent an ambassador named Melissippus to the Athenians to offer them terms if they would submit to him. But Pericles persuaded the council to refuse even to listen to Melissippus, who had been told to return to his own army before the setting of the sun. As he turned away from the council, Melissippus said to the Athenians, This day will be the beginning of many woes to the Greeks. Pericles knew that the Spartans would march into Attica as soon as their ambassador had returned, so he ordered the country folk to hasten within the strong walls of Athens for safety. Their cattle he bade them send to the island of Euboea. The Spartans found the Attic farms deserted, but they destroyed and burned them while they trampled down the cornfields and spoiled the olive groves and orchards. As the invading army drew nearer to Athens, 
The people within the city walls could mark its progress by the smoke that rose from the burning farms and villas. The men rushed to the gates, eager to go to attack the enemy, and it was all but beyond the power of Pericles to restrain them. As winter drew near, Archimedes was forced to retreat, for he had neither money nor food to keep his troops longer in the country of the enemy. Then Pericles, knowing that the way was clear, sailed from Athens with 13,000 men and surprised many villages on the Peloponnesian coast. He also burned the farms and houses in the district of Megara. When Pericles returned from Megara, a public burial was given, as was the custom, to those who had been slain in battle. A cedar box, in which were placed the bones of the fallen, was carried without the walls of the city and buried. For those whose bodies had not been recovered, there was an empty bed cover with a pole. The funeral oration, or panegyric as it was named, was spoken by Pericles. Here are a few of the sentences which Thucydides, the historian, heard as he stood among the people and listened to the panegyric. Our city is equally admirable in peace and in war, for we are lovers of the beautiful, yet simple in our tastes, and we cultivate the mind without loss of manliness. Wealth we employ, not for talk and ostentation, but when there is real use for it. To avow poverty is with us no disgrace. The true disgrace is in doing nothing to avoid it. An Athenian citizen does not neglect the state, because he takes care of his own household, and even those of us who are engaged in business have a fair idea of politics. We alone regard a man who takes no interest in public affairs, not as harmless, but as a useless character. I would have you day by day fix your eyes upon the greatness of Athens until you become filled with the love of her, and when you are impressed with the spectacle of her glory, Reflect that this empire has been acquired by men who knew their duty and had the courage to do it. They freely gave their lives to her as the fairest offering which they could present at her feast. The whole earth in the sepulchre of famous men, not only are they commemorated by columns and inscriptions in their own country, but in foreign lands there dwells also an unwritten memorial of them, graven, not on stone, but in the hearts of men. Make them your example. Chapter 62 The Last Words of Pericles When the Spartans marched out of Attica, the country folk left the shelter of the walls of Athens to go back to their fields, to dig, to plough, to sow. They hoped in due time to reap a plenteous harvest, 
for last year's crop had been destroyed by the enemy. But before the corn was ripe, they knew their hopes were in vain. The Spartans had come back, and once again, the people were forced to leave their fields and take refuge within the walls of the capital. In the city itself, an enemy appeared, an enemy that worked more dreadful havoc than even the Spartan army. The plague had come to Athens. It had spread rapidly, for the people were crowded together, some in sheds, some in tents, and these rough shelters were not kept clean. Squalor and lack of room added to the misery of the sick folk. Thousands of those who had fled for their safety to the city were stricken by the plague, and at first few recovered. For fear seized upon those whom the plague spared, and they left the sick unattended to die, tortured by thirst and alone. At length, even the Spartans grew afraid, lest upon them too the plague should fall, and they again withdrew from Attica. Then Pericles sailed to Peloponnesus and attacked the enemy in its own country but with little or no success. But in Thrace, the town of Potidaea, which had been besieged by the Athenians for a year, was forced to surrender. No breach had been made in the walls, but the famine-stricken people could no longer bear the pangs of hunger, nor had they strength left to defend their city. The Athenians allowed the miserable inhabitants to leave Potidaea, but the men were forbidden to take anything with them save one garment, whilst the women were permitted to take two. Before long, Athenian families were sent to settle in Potidaea, which then became a colony belonging to Athens. During the war, the popularity of Pericles began to wane. It was he who had advised the Athenians to carry on war with the Spartans, and they now accused him of causing all the misery which they had to endure. While he was absent with the fleet in 430 BC, Cleon, the head of those who were opposed to Pericles, tried to make peace with the enemy, but his efforts were in vain. Cleon was determined, if it were possible, to cause the downfall of Pericles. So when he returned to Athens, he accused him of using public money to his own ends. When the public accounts were examined, a small sum was missing, and Pericles was fined by the law of courts, but no stain was left on his character. The Athenians were a fickle people, and before long, they forgot their anger, and Pericles found himself as popular as ever. They were even eager to carry on the war with Sparta. Once before, Pericles had been attacked by his enemies, along with Phaedius the sculptor, of having kept some of the gold which was intended to adorn the statue of Athens in the Parthenon but it was easy to prove that the charge was false, 
for the gold had been fixed to the statue in such a way that it could be easily detached. Pericles demanded that this should be done, so that the gold might be weighed. His enemy could not refuse the test, so the gold was taken off the statue, weighed, and found to be correct. Against Phadius, there were other charges, one being in the frieze of the Parthenon, there were sculpted portraits of himself and Pericles. In 432 BC, the great sculptor was thrown into prison, where he died before the day fixed for his trial. The plague, which had disappeared for a year, broke out again in 429 BC with new violence. Pericles had already lost two sons through the terrible scourge. When Paralus died, his favourite child, he placed a garland upon his body and shut himself in the house to mourn. Nor could he be persuaded afterwards to take much interest in affairs of the state. A year later, he was himself stricken by the plague. He recovered, but was soon after attacked by fever, which he was too weak to resist. As he lay dying, his friends gathered around his bed. Thinking that he did not hear what they said, they began to speak to one another of the great things he had done during his life. But Pericles heard, and interrupting them, said, What you praise me in is partly the result of good fortune, and, at all events, common to me with many other commanders. What I am most proud of, you have not noticed. No Athenian ever put on mourning for an act of mine. These were his last words. Plutarch tells us that Pericles was indeed a character deserving of our high admiration, not only for his equitable and mild temper, but also for the high spirit and feeling which made him regard it the noblest of all his honours, that, in the exercise of such immense power, he never had treated any enemy as irreconcilably opposed to him. And it appears to me, says Plutarch, that this one thing gives that otherwise childish and arrogant title a fitting and becoming significance so dispassionate to temper, a life so pure and unblemished, might well be called Olympian, in accordance with our conceptions of the divine being to whom, as the natural authors of all good and nothing evil, we ascribe the rule and government of the world. Chapter 63 The Siege of Plataea The Peloponnesian War began with an attack upon the little town of Plataea. Two years later, in the early summer of 429 BC, Plataea was again attacked, this time by the Spartans, who were led by their king, Archidamus. The town, small though it was, was an Athenian fortress, so the Spartans were eager to raise it to the ground. But Plataea stood on sacred territory, for Pausanias, 
after his great victory over the Persians, had declared that in time of war it should ever be left undisturbed. The Plataeans reminded the king of the promise of the Spartan general and begged him to withdraw his troops. Archidamus would not lead his army away, but he promised to do the Plataeans no harm if they would become allies of Sparta, or if they would give up their alliance with Athens and fight on neither side. But the Plataeans would not agree to either of these plans. Then the king offered to let them leave the town. He promised that their homes, their orchards, their fields would be kept in good order as long as the war lasted and that they would be given them back when peace was made. It was a generous offer, and the Plataeans begged to be allowed to send to Athens to ask her advice. Her answer speedily settled the matter. Athens, so ran the message, never deserted her allies, and would not now neglect the Plataeans, but secure them with all her might. Wherefore the alliance must stand, and the attack of the Spartans be withstood. When Archidamus heard what Athens had said to the Plataeans, he determined to besiege the town. The Thebans, who were with the Spartan army, rejoiced that war was to begin, for they were ever bitter enemies of the Plataeans. The little town prepared to defend herself against the enemy sending away the women and children to a place of safety. A hundred women slaves only were kept to cook and wash for the garrison, which was small. Yet few in number as they were, the doughty citizens withstood the attacks of the Spartans for two years. When Archidamus ordered his men to raise a mound as high as the wall around the town, the Plataeans at once added to the height of their defences. They also dug beneath the mound of the enemy, and so undermined it that it was continually sliding down. Then, lest the wall should at length be scaled by the enemy, the citizens built an inner wall to protect the city yet more strongly. Often the little garrison looked wistfully for the help that Athens had assured them would be sent. But month after month passed, and no help came for the plague-stricken city. Yet the Plataeans did not dream of surrender. Archidamus was in despair, for he knew that his soldiers were seldom able to take a walled town. His pride was hurt at the thought of being beaten by a mere handful of men. He had with him the whole Polyponnesian army. Yet a garrison of five hundred had been able to defy all his efforts to capture the city. The king determined, since he could not take the town by assault, to starve it into submission. So he now ordered two great walls to be built round the city, placing on them here and there towers or battlements. The walls were a certain space apart and this space was covered over so that the soldiers could live in it as a camp, while armed sentinels paced up and down the roof. 
When the second year of the siege began, food grew scarce in Plataea. Either the little garrison must force its way out or die of hunger. To escape, the soldiers would have to scale the wall without attracting the attention of the sentinels and reach the ground on the other side. More than half the garrison resolved to stay where it was, but about 200 determined to make the perilous attempt. So one cold, dark night in the month of December, when the sentinels had retreated into the towers for shelter, the brave 200 stole out of the town, carrying ladders on their backs. They wore little clothing, that they might climb and run the easier. That they might step the more quietly, their feet were bare, while on the left each wore a shoe to keep him from slipping on the mud. Stealthily, they made their way across the ditch and reached the wall unseen, unheard. Twelve of the bravest scaled the wall and killed the sleeping sentinels who had sought shelter in the towers from a storm of wind and rain. The others then mounted the wall, fixed their ladders on the farther side, and reached the ground in safety, while the twelve, who had waited to the last, began to descend. All would have been well, had not one man slipped and knocked a tile off the top of the wall. It rattled and fell to the ground with a noise that roused the Spartans, who scrambled up the wall in great haste. But the darkness was so dense that they could see nothing. Those of the garrison who had stayed in the city did all they could to perplex the enemy by making a sally on the side of the town farthest from that which their friends had fled. And when the Spartans lit torches, and flashed danger signals to the Thebans, whose city was not far off. The Plataeans lit beacons, so that the signals were confused. Meanwhile, the fugitives, having reached the ground in safety, were met by a band of three hundred Spartans. These were carrying lights, so the Plataeans were able to send a shower of arrows among them with sure and deadly aim. In the confusion that followed, all save one archer succeeded in crossing a ditch, covered with ice, but too thin to bear the weight of fugitives. They struggled through the icy water, and after many narrow escapes, 212 weary men reached Athens in safety. Plataea held out gallantly until the summer of 427 BC when famine at length forced her to surrender. Five hundred were sent from Sparta to decide the fate of the prisoners. But the trial was a mere form, for the Thebans had already persuaded the Spartans how to treat the unfortunate men. Each prisoner, as he was brought before the judges, was asked if he helped the Spartans in their war against Athens. As each one answered no, he was led out and put to death. In this way, 
200 Plataeans and 25 Athenians lost their lives, while the city they had so bravely defended was razed to the ground. Chapter 64 The Sentence of Death In the fourth year of the Peloponnesian War, the city of Mytilene threw off the yoke of Athens. Mytilene was the capital of Lesbos, an island near the coast of Asia. The city had belonged to the Delian League, and when the League became the Empire of Athens, the city remained faithful to the Empire. But as time passed, the Mytilenians became afraid lest Athens should treat them as she had treated the Samians, and should make them subjects instead of allies. While Athens was at war with Sparta, she would have little time, thought the Mytilenians, to trouble about their small island, so they revolted and asked the Spartans to support them, if that should be necessary. The Spartans promised to help the Mytilenians if the Athenians should punish their disloyalty, but, as so often happened, they did not attempt to keep their promise until it was too late. Athens was angry when she heard of the revolt in Mytilene. Although she could ill spare the men, she sent an army under a general named Pakes to blockade the town by sea and by land, so to starve her into submission. At all costs, Mytilene must not fall into the hands of Sparta. Before long, so strict was the blockade, food began to run short in the hapless island, and the Spartans failed to send the help they had promised. But when the citizens were desperate with hunger, a messenger from Sparta reached the town. He had passed the Athenian army unnoticed and had entered Mytilene, to the delight of the starving people. When he assured them that ships laden with corn were on the way and would reach them soon, their joy was unbounded. Day after day, week after week passed but the Spartan ships did not come, and hope began to die out in the hearts of the Mytilenians. It was plain that they must either surrender or starve to death, so they determined to surrender. They sent for Pakes and agreed to give up the city, and to leave their fate to be decided by the Athenian assembly. In the meantime, about 1,000 of the inhabitants were sent as prisoners to Athens. The Athenians had been bitterly angry with the Mytilenians for revolting when their hands were already full with war at home and with the misery caused by the plague. They were in no mood now to deal mercifully with them. Cleon, a leather merchant, who by his own efforts had risen to a high position in the state, roused the temper of the people by his rough and noisy eloquence, and Pericles was no longer alive to restrain it, as he so often had done, by his wiser, calmer speech. When the assembly met, it was Cleon who proposed that all those able to bear arms should be put to death, 
and that the women and children should be sold as slaves. In its angry mood, the assembly voted as Cleon wished. No sooner was the sentence of death passed than a ship was dispatched to the island to bid Pacchus, the Athenian general, carry out the terrible decision of the assembly. But a little later, when the assembly broke up and escaped from the influence of Cleon's eloquence, the members began to be ashamed of their cold-blooded sentence. Ambassadors from Mytilene had come to Athens to plead the cause of their people. When they saw that the Athenians were uneasy, they persuaded them to call another meeting of the assembly the following morning to reconsider the sentence that they had passed. Cleon had felt no regret at the fate of the rebels, and he was indignant that the assembly should dream of revoking his decree. When it met on the following day, he spoke even more vehemently than before, urging the members to see that the sentence was carried out. But Diodotus, a noble Athenian, whose name has never been forgotten, spoke as well as Cleon. So wise were his words that those who had already wished to alter the sentence for pity's sake were now sure that wisdom also demanded that the Mytilenians should be spared. Diodotus won the day, for Cleon was defeated by a small majority. No sooner was the sentence revoked than in hot haste a ship was manned, and the crew was bidden to do its utmost to overtake the vessel which was carrying the sentence of doom to Mytilene. Already it was twenty-four hours since the ship had left Athens. Was it possible to carry the good news in time? The ambassadors promised large rewards to the oarsmen if they reached the city before the terrible sentence had been carried out. In their anxiety, they provided barley, wine, oil for the crew. There was no lack of zeal on the part of the sailors. They rowed with all their strength, taking but scant rest and eating the barley, which had been soaked in wine and oil and made into cakes as they sat to their oars. They knew that on their speed depended the life or death of thousands. Swifter and swifter flashed the oars of the second ship. In the first vessel, the sailors pulled slowly, for they were in no haste to deliver the dreaded tidings which they carried. And it was well that they had no heart for their task, for with every muscle strained to the utmost, the crew of the second boat reached Mytilene only just in time. The death sentence had already reached Pacquez, and he was preparing to carry it out, when with a glad, triumphant shout, the second boat swung into the harbour, and the Mytilenians were saved. But even so, they paid heavily for their rebellion, for about thirty of their leading citizens were executed. Their fleet was taken by the Athenians, and the walls of their city were destroyed. Chapter 65 Brasidas loses his shield. In 425 BC, 
the seventh year of the war, an Athenian fleet of about forty ships, under an admiral named Eurymedon, was forced by stormy weather to seek shelter on the promontory of Pylos in Messenia. Pylos stood on the Bay of Pylos, which you know now as the Bay of Navarino. To give the men something to do until the storm allowed them to sail, Demosthenes, an officer on board one of the ships, bade them to begin building a fort. But it was not only to employ the men that he did this, but because he believed that Pylos would make a good fortress from which to attack the western shore of Polyponesus. At first the men took little interest in the work, for they expected each day to leave Pylos. But as the storm continued, they began to work with a will, and soon a fortress that looked fit to defy an enemy was finished. It had not been easy work, for the men had no iron tools. They could not cut stone, but were forced to pick out those that fitted into each other. When mortar was needed, they had to carry it on their backs, bending forward that it might not fall, and clasping their hands behind them to help keep it in place. At length the storm was over, and the fleet sailed away, leaving Demosthenes with five ships to hold the new fortress. Now, the entrance to the Bay of Pylos was almost blocked by a narrow, thickly wooded island called Sphacteria. The Spartans soon heard that the Athenians had taken possession of Pylos, which was on their territory. They determined to expel them, and an army under Epitadus was at once sent out and took possession of the wooded island of Sphacteria, while a Spartan fleet sailed into the Bay of Pylos. On board one of the ships was a famous Spartan named Brasidas. Demosthenes had just time to send to Eurymendon to beg him to return with his forty ships when the Spartans sailed up the promontory, meaning to attack and capture the fort. It proved impossible to land. Again and again, the Spartan admiral made the attempt, but each time he was forced to withdraw, lest his ships should be dashed upon the rocks. Rasidus refused to give in, and he bade his men wreck their vessels rather than be beaten back. Be not sparing of timber, he cried, for the enemy has built a fortress in your country. Perish the ships and force a landing. Spurred on by his words, the men drove their ships upon the beach, while Brasidas stood fearlessly on the gangway, ready to leap upon the shore. But the Athenians saw the bold figure too well, and he became a target for every arrow. As he fell back wounded, his left arm hung helplessly over the side of the vessel, and his shield slipped off and fell into the water. The waves washed it towards the shore, whereupon the enemy dashed down to the edge of the water and drew it in triumph to the beach. After a desperate struggle, the Spartans were forced to withdraw, 
and the Athenians celebrated their victory by erecting a trophy of their spoils, placing, where every eye could see it, the shield of Brasidas. For two days the Spartans still fought to gain the fortress, but in vain. On the third day, Eurymendon returned with the Athenian fleet, and as the Spartan ship did not come to meet him, he sailed in at the two entrances to the Bay of Pylos, for the opening had not been secured by the enemy. A desperate battle took place. Many of the Spartan ships were empty, as their crews were on shore. The Athenians tried to drag away these empty vessels, so that the enemy would have no way of escaping from Sphacteria. But the Spartans knew that they must save their vessels at all costs, so they fought with redoubled fury and succeeded in rescuing most of the deserted ships. Yet their efforts proved of little use in the end, for though only five ships were captured, the rest of the fleet was so damaged that the Athenians were left in possession of the bay. They at once began to blockade Epitadus and his army in Spacteria, 